This digitally remastered episode is sponsored by our publisher, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. To get a signed copy of our book, Transmigrations, go to sageandsavant.com or pick up your copy from edgewebsite.com or Amazon today. And now for our show. and welcome to the audio-etheric transmission The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. This broadcast is brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California. Episode 5, A Life Before the Mast, was written by Eddie Louise. Our tale stars Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. Special guest in this episode was Craig Smith as the first mate. This month's program features the music of Gertie Bird. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. When last we saw our time-traveling theorists, they were embroiled in a New York City gang war and swept away by the excitement of the newsboy strike in 1899. As we have all become accustomed, that ended badly. It wasn't that bad. Your pardon? It wasn't that bad. It was just uncertain. Uncertainty is not bad for science. It is just a sign that you have not yet fully tested your theories. I suppose I see your point, but what is good for science is not necessarily good for me. Speaking of what is good for a body, the doctor is most concerned for what is good for their bodies whilst they are away. She has created a large rack of bottles suspended over each platform. The bottles contain enough fluids and liquid energy to keep them healthy for a week. Corkscrewing copper tubing, designed to automatically feed into the intravenous lines for herself and the professor, springs wildly from the nest of bottles. Were you able to effectively position your own waste removal tubes, or do you need my help to get them in place? Oh, no, no, no. I think everything is in order. Thank you. I'm simply attempting to spare you the indignity of the mess you awoke to the last time. Oh, there is no indignity in traveling through time and space with you, my dear. (laughs) Well, be that as it may, your comfort is important to me. There is one other change in the laboratory. A meter-thick roll of paper is now positioned to the left of the platforms and is feeding into the recording device for the CRAP helmets. Combined with the new tubing, the overhanging water bottles, and the platforms themselves, the laboratory is once again stuffed to the bursting point. Laboratory of Dr. Petronella Sage, King's College, 31 August, 1893, 4.56 p.m. I have adjusted the pitch of the Cladney device to G above middle C, and preliminary testing reliably creates a definitive curved nodal line in the upper left quadrant. It varies less than 0.02 degrees from one attempt to the next. I anticipate that it is this trajectory that will cause us to finally break the century barrier and venture further into the past than has yet been possible. 
I have decided to continue the use of the CRAP helmets, even though the data collected this far has been entirely flat from the moment of our departure until the point of our arrival back in our own bodies. This data may have some bearing on how the return is enacted. If there is a spike of electrical activity before the return point that in any way mimics that at the initiation of travel, it may prove key to understanding the mechanism of disengagement, and it may lead up to the discovery of a manner to end the explorations other than by sudden and violent death. This will also allow me to ascertain if the time we are aware of in other bodies matches with the passage of time here, and if not, what are the variances? Are you ready, Professor? Ever ready to follow you into the void, dear Petra. As you might have noticed, astute listener, we have joined our pair of explorers a little late into the process. This is because the time jumps have become routine. Sage and Savant have leapt into the void twice more since last we met. As you may have surmised, the excitement we once felt for the great unknown has been tempered by the fact that they have yet to travel farther than 85 years into the past. I do believe I've cracked the directional thrust this time, Erasmus. If my calculations of the nodal patterns are correct, we should finally crack the century barrier. The doctor has calibrated the pitch to produce a nodal line that she believes will send them backwards by 160 years. If successful, it will be the first step towards pinpointing a moment in time and navigating towards it. Let us see if she has succeeded. Upon awakening, which I should mention, dear listeners, is coming with less and less disorientation as they become used to the displacement felt upon uniting one's consciousness with a foreign corporeal entity, our adventurers notice two things. Firstly, they are not on terra firma. The wooden floor underneath their prone forms pitches and rolls in a most alarming manner. And secondly, uh, Erasmus, there's something wrong. I have a rather funny feeling low in my stomach. Petra, that is you? Oh my, this is new. What? What is new? Take a moment for self-examination, my dear. Oh, huh. I appear to be a man. A man in a rather excited state. It is most uncomfortable. Minor issues of discomfort aside, our heroes have landed in the middle of a pirate battle aboard a merchantman currently losing to the determined horde of freemen with a hunger for booty. Is that a battle I hear overhead? It seems so. And this body chose this moment to do... this? Well, some men become tuminescent during the passion of battle, and judging by the sounds and the wounds we're both supporting, I would assume that we are casualties of the same. Battle or no, how do you put up with this beastly thing? It's not always so uncomfortable, let me assure you. Uh, perhaps you just need to shift it a bit. Shift it? Move it to a more comfortable position, uh, like a 90-degree lever. Slide it along until it's more comfortable. I do not really want to touch it. I'm sure those hands have touched that particular lever many times. Not helping. Any idea of where we are? In the hull of a ship, by all indications. I believe that door might be the powder hold. You were set to guard it, perhaps. 
Well, these minute-off feet appear to be quite dead, and though one is dressed in homespun and motley as myself, well, the other is wearing much better quality broadcloth such as you have on. So I assume that I and my counterpart here are likely pirates, and we were unsuccessful in liberating the powder before succumbing to death. Yourself and your fellow were likely defending against the onslaught. I assume we were stabbed to death to avoid using shot in these confines, well, which is prudent to men who do not wish to be blown to smithereens. Right. I need to bandage our wounds to prevent desanguination. Let me see if I can find anything. Ugh, this body is cumbersome. How do you men move about as normal with such protuberances? As the doctor tears bandages from the clothing of the vanquished, Professor Savant surveys the cargo stacked in boxes and barrels all around them. Here, remove your shirt and stand still whilst I bandage you. Judging by the stamps on the cargo, I think we must be on a ship bringing sugar and tea from the Caribbean. You see the stamp? It's Philomouchari, who ceased trading in 1872. And this one bears the crest of the Earl of Doncaster, who was in the shipping business from 1682 until 1742. The lines of the ship are wrong for the 17th century. See how the knees curve just under the upper deck? That was a Canadian invention in the early 18th century. I speculate we are on a ship in either the East Indies or the Atlantic Ocean in roughly 1720. So, the 1720s, you are a pirate, I am not. Now, you bandage me, and maybe we can determine which of us is to be the prisoner of the other. Oh, my. It's quite a vivid tattoo you have there. (laughs) It it goes well with your earrings, actually. The professor reaches up to discover his right ear sports multiple gold hoops rising up along the curve of cartilage. He wears an assortment of talismans, trinkets, and pendants, tied into strips of clothing, on leather thongs around his neck, and hanging from locks of braided hair. Murphy, Jones, do we have the powder yet? Uh, That would be an eye, Captain. What are you on about, Murphy? You know I'm not the captain. Quit your lollygagging and get those barrels up here. Uh, Aye, Jones is dead, sir, but but I have a prisoner here from the crew. Uh, Shall I bring him up? Aye, get him before the mast, then get Fillmore to help you load out that powder. We'd best go above ships. You stay quiet and let me do the talking. I've always wanted to be a pirate. I think I shall manage the lingo with a plume. Don't call attention to yourself, Erasmus. Pirates are hard men, and I don't relish being left alone in their company. Savant delivers Sage to the foremast, where the living members of the merchantman's crew have been gathered under watchful pirate eyes. He gives her a meaningful waggle of the brows, and then turns to find the pirate Fillmore. Fillmore? Bear a while along with me. We're to shift that powder and quick. Savant heads back below decks to do as ordered, whilst Sage attempts to fit in with her erstwhile mates as they wait the pirate's pleasure before the mast. Johnson, who thought you was on the way to meet your maker? Where does Hughes? Hughes didn't make it, I'm afraid. Lord take us so. Be a planning to swear the articles. I hadn't thought to this point. Will you? I tell our attacker is John Phillips. Folk says as he kills those what don't. I likes me skin too much to chance that. The pirate's life for you, then. I shall follow your lead. Savant has managed to move the powder with alacrity, and as the last barrel ascends the gangway, his head pops up behind it, black smudges on his nose and cheeks, and a frightful grin across his visage. That man, for one, seems to love the life. Perhaps it ain't all bad. Perhaps not. Are our brave pair headed into uncharted waters and the company of pirates? 
Will they be able to effectively disguise their differences long enough to learn the ways of life before the mast? Or will the pirates recognize they are being duped and dispatch the scientists forthwith? We'll find out after this brief musical interlude. Now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the musical outpourings of Gertie Bird with Holloway Joe.
And now, back to our story. We join our heroes now as they take to a life of piracy and utmost villainy. The merchant ship has been plundered for all of value, but before the pirates cut the lines lashing the two ships together, they gather the members of the merchant crew who are choosing the life of the Brotherhood, including the newest of brothers, Dr. Sage. Our doctor has managed to work her way to the edge of the group, and Professor Savant has pressed up beside her with his piratical shipmates, ready to cheer the new recruits. All right. All those who stand crew of the revenge, take your knees before the mast for the reading of the pirate article. Oh my goodness! This is so exciting! I've heard about accounts of this ritual. This is one of the most remarkable thing about pirates. Of course, the governments of Europe and Americas did their best to keep the practice unknown in the homelands. What are you on about? What pirate articles? Remarkable documents of understanding between shipmates that serve before the mast. They lay out the revenue sharing, social responsibilities, and the like. It's a little known fact that going on the account could be far more lucrative than a sailor remaining in Her Majesty's employ, and only a little more deadly. Sailors' lives are dangerous and hard and short. But when it comes to being a pirate, that safe life comes with revenue sharing and more rum. Shut your gobs. Attend now the reading of the articles for the Revenge and her crew. 1. Every man shall obey civil command. The captain shall have one full share and half of all prizes. The master, carpenter, bosun and gunner shall have one share and quarter. 2. If any man shall offer to run away or keep secret from company, he shall be marooned with one bottle of powder, one bottle of water, one small arm and shot. 3. If any man shall steal anything in the company or gain to the value of a piece of eight, he shall be marooned or shot. 4. If at any time we shall meet another mariner, that man shall sign his articles without the consent of our company, shall suffer such punishment as the captain and company shall think fit. 5. That man shall strike another whilst these articles are in force, shall receive Moses' law, that is, 40 stripes lacking one on the bare back. 6. That man shall snap his arms or smoke tobacco in the hold without a cap to his pipe or carry a candle lighted without a lanthorn shall suffer the same punishment as in the former article. 7. That man shall not keep his arms clean, fit for an engagement or neglect his business, shall be cut off from his share and suffer such other punishment as the captain and the company shall see fit. 8. If any man shall lose a joint in the time of an engagement, shall have 400 pieces of 8. If a limb, 800. 9. If at any time you meet with a prudent woman, that man offers to meddle with her without her consent, shall suffer present death. Do you swear an oath to this day to uphold these articles? Support your brethren before the mast from this day onward. Then come forward and make your mark. Do you see? 
fair sharing of profits, condemnation of rape, health care for those who are injured in service. These pirates are not necessarily as barbaric as crown and country wish us to think. Then I shall make my mark and join you, my piratical brother. I cannot resist your enthusiasm. As the days pass in the rhythm of shipboard life, our pair of explorers adapt and even flourish, reveling in the emergence of new skills. One of the most surprising is the ability Dr. Sage has demonstrated in capturing and holding the attentions of the villainous crew. She entertains them with stories of electricity and horseless carriages. They think she is mad, of course. And so alternating current is the way we solve the problems of transmitting across distances, though the system is less stable than direct current. You're having us on, Johnson. There's no such thing as electricity. Oh, I can assure you there very much is. It is just currently invisible, but it is there all the same. (laughs) Did you get that? (laughs) Currently. (laughs) Don't you worry, none there, Johnstone. This lot just ain't got your finely tuned sense of humor, is all. It was very hard work being a sailor, but through the grace of Providence, the professor was made bosun and the doctor a gunner, so the work was something they could easily manage in bodies already hardened to the labor. But four days have passed, and there is no real death in sight. Dr. Sage has begun to worry about their natural bodies back in the lab at King's College. Though dehydration is no longer a concern, She worries that someone from the college might enter her lab to find them besuited in Faraday armor and appearing, for all intents and purposes, dead. She is actually enjoying the piratical life, but she is ready to go home. Murphy, a word? She pulls the professor away from a group of his mates, off to the foxhole, away from the impromptu that has broken out amidships. Yes, we have all learned a few nautical terms along this journey, and if you want a new word to become part of your vocabulary, you must use it. Make of that what you will. Erasmus, I'm beginning to worry that we have tarried too long in this time. We need to find a way to die horribly sooner and rather than later. Barpetra, life is most congenial out on the high seas. There is so much to admire in the pirate way of life. Uh, Take the articles, for example. Yes, yes, they are a nascent democracy. They are one of the most egalitarian societies on earth, etc., etc. You have been singing this song since the first night. When you saw the captains... Uh, Recruits? The recruits from the Elizabetta swear their oaths to the articles. Yes, revenue is shared as well as risk, but do not forget you are born into this glorious democracy of yours on a tide of blood. All democracies are born in blood, such as that about to be shed in the American colonies who are fermenting rebellion at this very time, for example. Be that as it may, should we neglect our true bodies until they die of it, our consciousnesses might stay with these bodies in this piratical life you so admire, but so too they might not. I, for one, am not ready to test that hypothesis. Besides that, I am most anxious to leave behind this troublesome male body with its smells and itches, farts and urges. Ah, you do have a point. I am finding your masculine body an inconvenience myself for an entirely different reason. I beg your pardon? I said I find having you in a male body a bloody terrible state of affairs. No, the other thing. You have a point? Yes, you have acknowledged my point. 
I shall treasure this day. Uh, so how shall we engineer a return home? Up to now, all the deaths have been accidental or at least unplanned. If we suicide, will we still return home? Another hypothesis I do not wish to test until we have more data. It is entirely possible that we must die suddenly or even violently on this end in order to enact the transmigration. So we need a violent death. We shall happen to be in violent company, that's for sure. What are the chances of a starting a brawl that could lead to our deaths? I think we would have no trouble starting the brawl, but I doubt the captain or the first mate would allow it to proceed as far as death. Our sword arms are too valuable when taking a prize. Well, perhaps we could start a rivalry among members of the crew to increase our chances of being killed in our sleep. Perhaps that would get one of us, but the other might end up stuck here. There must be another way. Sleep on it and let me know if any ideas have come to you by morning. In the event... Planning how to die takes a back seat to duty the next morning, as a prize is sighted and they are in a chase to run her down across fair seas. Excitement thrums in the lines as the ship strains forward, all canvas unfurled. On board the pirate vessel all is hushed and expectant as the pirates sharpen their cutlasses and prime their pistols. Through this, Sage and Savant hope that it will not be noticed that Murphy and Johnstone have shaky hands and sloppy technique. Although they have died numerous times, and though they must, for the sake of their own bodies, die now, some part of them fears the battle to come. It is one thing to know a thing intellectually, and quite another to embrace it bodily. Hoist the colors! Make ready the starboard cannon! Move lively now, lads. Let's blow her a kiss. On the roll-up, mates. Give them a gun. One gun. Topsail being furled, Captain. She's moving to strike. She'll not fight. Steal the guns. Musketeers to the prow. Look to your priming, boys. If any man so much as twitches at you as we come in for the dance, slash him down. Stand by with grapples at the larboard. Hands, grapnels at the ready, prepare to board. Guns and all, close and bar the port. Borders with me, across the world, shock! And so, with no battle at all, and little bloodshed to speak of, Captain Phillips took the prize and our heroes remain in their piratical bodies. Later that evening, they meet in the forecastle to discuss their options. Oh, and it was quite blood-pounding exciting to rush over the rails as part of the boarding party. It's too bad you were stuck below with the other gunners. I felt most dashing as I swung across the canyon. I'm sure you looked the part as well with your beads and trinkets and wild ropes of hair. It is like something out of a penny dreadful, the dashing but ruthless pirate off to take the young girl's virtue. I am offended. For the first part, I would never. Uh, and the second part, our articles forbid it. Uh, and for the third, I, I would never assault a young lady. Nor any one of the feminine gender. When a lady wants my attention, she will have to let me know they're desired. And welcome, in no uncertain terms. I know, Erasmus. I did not mean to question your honor. It's just that you look so piratical just now. And it is obvious that this life agrees with you. It shall be a shame to take you away from it. The life that agrees with me, dear Petra, is the life of adventure by your side. But speaking of getting away, have you come up with any more brilliant plan of self-destruction? Not exactly. 
Uh, how not exact? Do you know that angry ginger from the new recruits today, Herodine? Oh, the one who looked as if he were sucking on a persimmon during the swearing articles? Aye, yes, what of him? I overheard him speaking to one of his fellows in the companionway outside the mess. They are not pleased to be turned pirate, and only swore the articles to avoid death. Not sure what that might have to do with us. If they are planning a mutiny, perhaps we can get athwart it and put ourselves in a position to die. Ah, that is quite ingenious. Oh, I might suggest that one of us cozy up to the mutineers, and the other one stand aside the captain so as we'll know our course beyond all peradventure. Pardon? So we'll know what we're about. Uh, we'll have the measure of the wind, so to speak. Uh, I should be happy to cast my lot with the mutineers. I think it makes more sense for me. Herodine is assigned below decks like me, and in your position as bosun, you might be taken for a stooge. Besides, it will be easier for you to stay close to the captain who certainly doesn't want a lowly gunner clouding up his command deck. And with that, the pair part ways with an eye to subterfuge. We shall leave them to their machinations as we take a short break for a message from our sponsor. Hello, listeners. Eddie Louise here, head writer for the Tales of Sage and Savant. I like stories that ignite my imagination, that make me think about the world in new ways, and that inspire me to build a future world. This is the kind of fiction I strive to write, and this is the kind of fiction published by our sponsor, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Featuring works by established authors and emerging new voices, Edge is pleased to provide quality literary entertainment, including book one of the Tales of Sage and Savant, Transmigrations, in both print and pixels. Look for books with the Edge logo at your local bookstore and online for Kindle, Kobo, Nook, iTunes, and Google Play. Find your next great read at www.edgewebsite.com. Yes, dear friends, when you want to curl up with a great story, trust books from Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. And now... Back to our story. It has been another two days, dear listeners, and death has yet to present itself to our piratical pair. Savant attempted to warn the captain of the threads of mutiny weaving below decks, but the man had no time for speculation and supposition. Sage has ingratiated herself to the mutineers, but they seem to be waiting for some unspoken signal to spring their attack. So the seas glide by, the wind fair, and the weather gauge favorable, and the doctor grows impatient with the waiting. Hist possible your suspected mutiny is not more than a freeboater with a fat maw? Is it possible that the talk of mutiny is just talk? Possibly. But I surely must find a way to get us home before your language deteriorates any further. And what be wrong with me parlance the now? Nothing is wrong, exactly. I would just prefer to have my own professor back. This rough corsair is a bit much for my taste. Well, I'll back you on that course. I'm most ready to lay my eyes on your true form. This one is a bit bustly for my taste, and, and so, you know... <clears throat> I can still talk with my own declension. It's just easier to speak in the vernacular familiar to this body. Why is it that you are affected by your host body's lingo and I am not? I sound like a child at masquerade when I attempt to talk like a pirate. 
It may have something to do with our areas of study. I spent my academic life attempting to understand an artifact from the point of view of its culture. In this instance, the longer I spend among the brethren, the easier it is to assimilate their ways. Down to the last R! Well, no matter the case, I believe we are running out of time. Either the mutiny occurs soon, or we will have to risk death in another manner. This is the longest we've remained out of our own bodies, and we've sailed into uncharted waters. The doctor has a point. Would that my own humble skills as narrator would allow me to peek in on the laboratory and inform you of what transpires there. But alas, I am tied to our heroes and must wait, along with you, to find out the state of the vacated vessels. I can, however, spare you the tedium of a long afternoon swabbing decks and such, and bring you to the point where the last light of the setting sun spears across the gleaming quarterdeck where the gentle luffing of the sails in the evening breeze calls the crew to rest, where the seeds of mutiny are finally sprouting, and where, at last, the discontented Herodine shows his true level of villainy and attacks his sworn captain. Johnstone, Oaks, who say that a sailing master? Campbell, Jameson, take out the first mate. The captain is mine. If any get in your way, offer them the chance to join our noble cause. If they refuse, then damn dear eyes. The attack is on. Sage sneaks as silently as possible across the deck, a knife in her teeth and a prayer on her lips. Savant has joined the captain at the taffrail for a pipe and a discussion on the finer points of a pirate's honor. It is not about creating a form of government, but rather of a covenant of men, one of mutual respect and of value for one's contribution. Well, I, but if we were to establish a beachhead somewhere, Nassau say, could we not create a brotherhood of men that governs itself in a far superior manner to any yet known? Ah, you're an idealist, I see, Murphy. You join Atkins in that. Unfortunately, it is the very ephemeral nature of our company that makes it function. Introduce land, the presence of women, the pedestrian nature of life ashore, and the greed of man will reassert itself. This is the great problem of Her Majesty's Navy. Though the ships are at sea, they are ruled by men whose hearts are shorebound. Our company, on the other hand, is truly of the sea, and as such we must rely on each other above all to survive and flourish. The captain seems of good character. I am beginning to worry that the plan of standing with separate sides in this coming conflict will prove to be disastrous. Just as the conspirators are drawing closer to the captain and the bosun, our own friend Savant, the sailing master Richard Atkins steps out of the companionway and sees the mutineers. Oi! What are you men about? Oakes falls on Atkins and the doctor pretends support. Within seconds, Oak has stabbed the sailing master to a bloody end. The need for stealth is past now, and Herodine calls his co-conspirators to action. Out em, boys! Point and edge! Cut the bastards down! The captain draws his cutlass, and at his side, Savant does the same. The mutineers rush the pair, and they fall in a hail of bullets and slashing swords. Seeing Savant fall under the onslaught, Sage fights the urge to run to his defense, and instead, turns into the onrushing tide of sailors come to defend their captain. As a cutlass plunges into her chest, she hears Herodine proclaim his victory. Brothers, the captain is dead, and for all me, that's the end of it. 
I'll not quarrel with the likes of you and we can lay aside the arms and embrace as brothers if you'll but agree. It is a very subdued sage and savant that find themselves back in the laboratory, weak as kittens and unfortunately fragrant. Oh dear. It seems I did not gauge the waste receptacle capacity correctly. I shall have to have a shower installed here in the laboratory if we are to continue taking such long trips away. That might make these displacements a little easier to bear, yes. But Petra, have we really been gone a week? You do not lecture at this point, but I do. I cannot afford to miss my lectures willy-nilly. Yes, I simply must come up with a better mechanism for ending our travels than violent and unpredictable death. Here, I had some apples set aside in the cold box. Eat this, it will make you feel better. And have some of this jerked meat as well. Neither of the pair are much inclined to speak further. They clean up as best they can silently, each contemplating the adventures of the past week. Once the professor is dressed, his naturally loquacious personality begins to reassert itself. I shall have to write about it, of course. Pirates are vilified by history as the lowest sort, uneducated, unclean. But John Phillips was well-read, philosophical, and pragmatic. I'm not sure I've made the acquaintance of his better. Certainly, you must write. Else what reason for these travels? Do you see the Cladney pattern? I wonder if it is this strong rightward sweeping line that took us back so successfully. I must find a way to amplify the effect of it. Their respective reveries are broken by a pounding at the door. Dr. Sage, I really must insist you answer me. I cannot wait longer for your response. If you do not open this door, I shall be forced to get facilities to open it for me. I understand you wish to keep your research under wraps, but your secrecy has gone too far. It's the provost. You'll have to let him in. One moment, please, provost. I can certainly let you in. I just... I must power some equipment down, however. Quick, Erasmus, the cadaver arm from the cold box. The doctor and the professor scramble to reset the lab in the guise of a standard galvanization platform. Then Petra boosts the professor out the window. She does her best to pat her hair back into place and then opens the door. Why, Provost Cunningham, how nice of you to come by. Please, forgive the state of my lab. <laughs> the nosy provost shoulders his way into the laboratory, a harsh and disapproving look on his face. Will this be the end of Petra's funding? Will Sage and Savant never again have a chance to journey through space and time? Tune in next month to find out. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a Twin Star production brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Chip Michael as Savant, Eddie Louise as Sage, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Special guest in this episode was Craig Smith as the first mate. Episode 5, A Life Before the Mast, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical information we included in this episode? Go to our website for the complete bibliography. Theme music and audio engineering by Chip Michael. Special music in this episode was Holloway Joe by Gertie Bird. Check her out at gertiebird.co.uk. We would like to thank our friends Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing for sponsoring this digitally remastered episode. 
Catch our website at sageandsavant.com and like us on Facebook to stay current with all things Sage and Savant. And remember, death is no barrier to science.